0: Right, right, we're continuing our series in baptism. I've been thinking about baptism for the last month. I read about it, listened to about it, heard debates about it. Seriously, I should get a PhD on, I should write a book about baptism. Anyway, all this time spent on baptism so that I could give you a proper teaching of what baptism is. Baptism is something that all of us kind of assume that we know what it is, but never really have given thought of what it really means, right? And that's why we're devoting this series on baptism. Today's sermon is about infant baptism and believer's baptism, okay? Um, Infant baptism definitions, infant baptism is is the practice, which is done by majority of the Christian, by the way. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, they all baptize their babies, right? So infant baptism is a practice of baptizing infants of members of the church, okay? And like I said, it's done by majority of Christendom in the world, all right? There's infant baptism which Presbyterians and every, most of other people practice. And there is also called believer's baptism, also known as cradle baptism. Believers, people who are for believer's baptism say, baptism is only for those people who, pref- who has heard the gospel and who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It is only these people who should get baptized. All right. so these are the two definitions. Comprende? We're clear? All right? So, yeah, like I said, there's many different, there's two main practices of baptism these days, right? But even within the different denominations that practice infant baptism, how they define what they mean by infant baptism is a little bit different, okay? For example, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans, they practice infant baptism, and they say the reason why they baptize their infants it's because they believe that the ceremony of baptism itself, the ceremony itself, sprinkling what, like pouring water on the baby, that has the power to eliminate original sin. Huh? Right? The ceremony itself has the power to eliminate original sin. Right? That's why they baptize their infants. But... The Catholics and Lutherans believe even though baptism eliminates the kid's original sin, if, this, if the kid grows up and just, not, you know, just live a wild life, then that kid can lose their salvation. Just because you pour water on the kid and the kid's original sin has been washed, it doesn't mean that kid's salvation is guaranteed. That kid can lose their salvation. Right. That's what the Catholics and the Lutherans believe. Presbyterians, on the other hand, they don't believe to that extent. Presbyterians, SPC, pastor Williams denomination, Presbyterians believe infant baptism does not the ceremony itself does not have the power to save the child. It does not. What, and we we'll gonna talk about this in more detail later. What infant baptism is, is it's the sign of the new covenant that God has given to Christians. And if the child's parent are Christians, they receive the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. And, be, and if the parent has received the sign of baptism, right, then by the virtue of their biological connection with the kid, the kid will receive the sign of baptism. But that sign of baptism in and it of, it of itself does not save the kid. And in other words, let me, because I've thought about it so much, I can so easily nerd out. I don't want to do that because I'm not a nerd, right? I'm a jock, right? I'm a nerd, right? I'm not a nerd. I'm a jock, right? <laughs> I'm, a jo- I'm a jock. I'm a man of the people, not a, not a nerd. The reason I'm telling you this is I think a lot of parents who baptize their infants, whether were in a Catholic setting or Presbyterian setting, they don't really think about the theological implication of what it means to baptize their infants. Right? Let's be honest. When you baptize, I baptize my children. Caleb is a covenant baby, right? We, we, I baptize Caleb. Or, or I, I submitted Caleb. We have a picture at our house. Mass infant baptism. when Caleb was like, I don't know, night three months or something. But we don't really think about the meaning of infant baptism. We don't. We just kind of do it for the sake of doing it. And the reason why we do it, let's be honest, most parents submit their kids to infant baptism because we want the best for our kids, and we want to somehow show God and other people, that our child is a Christian. Let's be honest. Most people don't have the theological nerdydom like good old Pastor Jay, right? They just submit their kids to infant baptism because we think the baptism will mark my kid as a Christian. But if you baptize your infant in a Presbyterian church, that Presbyterian church is telling you Just because you submit your child to infant baptism does not make that child a Christian. Do you understand? Unless you're Roman Catholic or Lutheran, if you baptize your child in a Presbyterian setting, it means the baptism that your kid receives does not make your child a Christian. That's what Presbyterians believe. Similar to the Baptists who believe in believer's baptism, what makes that child a Christian is a regenerating, born again, life, new life-giving power of the Holy, Holy Spirit that comes to the communication of the gospel. It is when your child hears the gospel, understands the gospel, professes your faith, his his or her faith in Jesus Christ. It is then they receive; they become Christians. Okay. So, if you baptize your child in a Presbyterian church, that act of baptism does not make your child a Christian. It's their faith and profession. Of, their faith and professing faith of Jesus Christ. When they do, when, when it happens, when they are conscious of that profession, that's what makes them a Christian. Okay, I'm nerding out. So let me just pull up the nerdum. Okay, so the question is, I'm going to spend most of the time, most of my time here. Explaining why Presbyterians, because because most of you from Presbyter- are Presbyterians from Presbyterian circle. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to argue from the, you know, Roman Catholic or Lutheran position. And let me argue from the Presbyterian position of why infant baptism matters, okay? Why infant baptism matters according to the Presbyterian church. Majority of the sermon, I'm going to be like an apologist for infant baptism, All right? Here we go. The basis of infant baptism is this, right? Infant baptism, they say, baptism is a sign of the covenant between God and His people. Like Pastor just said in the call of worship, the Bible is in the Bible. God makes a covenant between Him and His people. Covenant is a promise, an agreement, a declaration that God makes with His people. ¿La ¿Comprende? Right? I will be your God, you will be my people. God makes declarative covenant with his people. And when God makes a covenant, a promise, an agreement with his people, his, his promise always comes with a sign that represents that covenant. The best example of it is Noah's flood. Okay, Sunday school, list, Sunday school question. So we know Noah's, Noah's, Noah's story of Noah's ark. Flood came, 40 days, 40 nights. It wiped off, wiped up most of humanity besides Noah's family. And God promised Noah, I will never destroy humanity that way. That's God's covenant with Noah. I will not, I will, no, I will not destroy humanity in that way. And God gave a sign confirming his covenant to Noah. Please don't disappoint me. What is that sign that God gave Noah of that covenant? That's right. Rainbow. Dr. Jay and I, we had Korean barbecue in Woodbridge. It was pretty good. It was raining. It was a good restaurant. It has huge, big windows. Good restaurant. Dr. Jay, still open? Oh, well, good, good for them. And it was raining, and as soon as we finished eating, there was a huge rainbow. And I said, hey, sign of the covenant, or I thought, sign of the covenant. You see how it works? God makes a promise, and as a, as a, as a confirmation of that promise, he gives a sign, which is a rainbow. In the Old Testament, God makes a promise, a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. God says to Abraham, I will be your God, and I will be a God to you and to your offspring. I will make you and your children a multitude of nations. I commit myself to you and your your descendants. As a sign of that covenant that Abraham and Abraham's descendants are the people of God, the sign of that promise is circumcision. Okay? Right? Look, God, ever since Adam and Eve fell, God's main project in humanity is he's making for himself a new humanity, right? He is in the project. Since Adam's fall, God's project is his making himself a new humanity, a new people, a new nation. And his new humanity-building project Started with Abraham and his descendants. Okay? And as a sign of his new humanity building project with Abraham and his descendants, God says, circumcise your male offspring, Abraham, as a sign of my covenant to you. Are you with me so far? Am I too nerdy right now? No. Let's go. Let's look at the let's look at the contents of that promise. This is Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 is the specific content of God's promise to Abraham and his descendants. Number one, look at the promissory tone, right? God, look at the way that God declares his promises to Abraham. He says, behold, my covenant, that's in verse four and five, I think. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of multitude of nations no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of multitude of nations. God said to Abraham, I will make you, Abraham, a father of multitude of nations. That's why Abr- Abram's name changed from Abram to Abraham, right? abram to abraham right multitude of nations right and god's god promised abraham i'm gonna do this for you verse 6 i will make you exceedingly fruitful and i will make you into nations and kings shall come from you it's a unilateral promise that god makes to abraham <gasps> Little Lord abraham God promises this. And God also emphasizes, not only promises, his, he emphasized the fulfillment of those promises. He says, I am the God, verse one, I am the God Almighty, which means I can do anything, right? I can do anything. I can do anything, and I'm, because I'm God Almighty, I can make the, my promises come true. I will make my covenant with you. Verse... 5 for i have made you the father of multitude of nations look at the verb tense of verse 5 he says i have made you he's using a past tense right he says i already made you even though you haven't seen it right now abraham i already made you a father of many nations it's done dog right it's done I've already made you a father of nations. Not only have I promised this to you, I have done it, man. God's emphasis on divine fulfillment. But also look at what God, specifically what God promises to Abraham. Verse 8, and I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your soul journey, all the land of Canaan. So the promise that God gives Abraham is, is specifically tied to the land, the land of Canaan. Abraham is sojourning throughout the promised land, and the promised land that he's sojourning is the land of Canaan. And God says, I will give you and your offspring this land. OK? All right, I should stop yelling, OK? And and lastly, look, what am I doing? It's tied to Abraham's, it's tied to Abraham's household. Verse 7, the promise is for Abraham and his children, either biological children or children who are bought at a price. This covenant that God makes with Abraham is tied to Abraham's household specifically his biological child children that's why it's so important that god gave abraham isaac remember god like he had isaac god gave isaac miraculous listen to abraham that biological child is really important because the promise that god made to abraham is connected to abraham's biological progeny Number 1, once again, God makes covenant. God makes a unilateral promise to Abraham. God says, "I'm going to fulfill my promises to you, Abraham." Number 3, my promise to you is I'm going to give you this land, Abraham. Number 4, this promise is not only for you, but for your household, especially your biological children. God appears to Abraham and declares his promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed it in faith. Abraham said, yes, Lord, I believe. Right? It says that Abraham believed in God and that faith was credited to him as righteous. So a sign of God's promise and covenant to Abraham and his children, God tells Abraham, as a sign of my covenant to you, Circumcise all the male babies in your household. Eight days, right, for eight days old. Circumcise them. Circumcise the male children of your household as a sign of my covenant to you. Why male children? I'm a feminist, right? I, I like the Barbie movie as best, much as the next guy, right? right? Go Barbie, right? The question is, why not women? Why don't you circumcise women? Why the male? Is it because the Bible is not really patriarchal? No. It's because in the Old Testament, male dynasty is, it, 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 one runs through the male, male line. Because, again, God is going to build his covenant with Abraham's children He wants the males to be circumcised. And the sign of the circumcision means if a child is circumcised, it means that child is part of God's people and that child is marked for God. That's that's what the sign means. It means a child is a people of God and that child belongs to God. That's what that sign means. This is the boring part of the sermon, by the way. It gets exciting after all. Okay? So that's God's promise to Abraham and his offspring. And Abraham rem- God remembers his covenant with Abraham. He remembers his covenant with Abraham when the nation of Israel was under Egyptians, Egyptian dominance, when they were slaves of Egypt. God remembers his covenant with Abraham and he sends Moses to rescue them out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. Remember, God's promise to Abraham was tied to a land. I will give your offspring this land. To fulfill that covenant, he sends Moses to take his people out of Egypt into the promised land because he remembers his covenant with Abraham. Because God remembers his covenant with Abraham, God not only t- takes him out and takes them to the land, but God also gives... Abraham's children his law. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, were the the, the first humanity to actually God spoke to directly and revealed his word directly. And he tells the children of Abraham, if you obey my commands, I will reveal my blessings to you. I'm, the, I'm in a covenant with Abraham to be my people, and as part, to be your, to, for you to be my people, and as part of my people, I'm going to give you my law. And you as my people, if you obey my law, I'm going to reveal my blessings to you. But if you disobey my law, I'm going to reveal my wrath to you. That's the promise, Right? But we know the story. Abraham's children, even though God told them this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, believe, obey me, you will live. Disobey me, judgment. The children of Abraham was unable to keep God's law. Right? That's what the, most, most, of the Old Test, most of the Old Testament is about how the nation of Israel, the people of God, were unable to keep God's law. That's, that's what the majority of the Old Testament is about. And because they, they were not able to obey, love God and obey his word, God sends wrath upon that, that nation. His wrath culminates with them being t- but then being destroyed by the nation of Babylon, and they become enslaved of Babylon for 70 years. Okay? Even though they were the people of God who were supposed to love God and obey his word, they couldn't do it. God sends wrath, and that wrath was in the form of Babylon, and they were enslaved for Babylon for 70 years. But before this happened, through the prophet of Isaiah, Jeremiah, God reveals his plan. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. What does God say? He says to Israel through Jeremiah, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Not the old covenant that I made with Abraham, but I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to, their, to them, declares the Lord. God is saying, the new covenant I'm going to make is going to be different from the covenant I made with them in the, in the desert because they broke my covenant. He's describing Israel as an adulterous people. Jesus permits divorce and adultery because in in adultery, the adulterous party is destroying the covenant of marriage. Similarly, that's how God describes what Israel has done. You've broken, you've destroyed the covenant I made with you. Therefore, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this is new covenant. This covenant will be with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write them in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God's new covenant is, I will write my law in their hearts and in their minds. What God is promising here is, my new covenant with my people is I'm going to change their nature. Israel was unable to keep God's law because their nature did not want to keep God's law. Look, we're reading through Romans, and I was geeking out of Romans 7 yesterday. Romans 7, if you study it carefully, Paul is describing the condition of sinful nature. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, there is a sinful nature in me. There is this thing called sin in my heart, a nature of sin in my heart. When it sees the law of God, it has you have the desire not only not to keep it, but I have a desire to go against it. Right? He says, when I listen to the word covet, not only do I not want to covet, but I want to covet more. There is something about his nature that not only dislikes the law of God, but want to live in the opposite direction. It's weird when we see the right thing to do, not only do we not want to do the right thing, we get strange desire, strange delight in going against it. Isn't that true? Like when you're fighting against, with your spouse, when you say something that is hurtful, don't you kind of, a little bit, get a little bit of like, thrill? Yeah, you do. Don't you feel a little bit of like this, I don't know how I call it, satisfaction? When you rebel, when you hurt people, when you destroy people? Yeah, you do. You may not want to think that you're that type of person, but let's be honest. There is delight to be had when we go against the law of God. Paul says, human nature, it is such that we get thrill and delight in going against the law of God. How can such people obey God's law If that is in their nature, how can such people obey God's law? You need a new heart. You need for God to write his law directly in your heart. Your nature, your heart's nature has to change so that you will delight, truly delight in God and his law. And God says, my new covenant is, I'm going to give you, give my people a new nature. That covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do you understand? What baptism is, listen to me carefully, people, it's not some empty ceremonial ritual that we go through. It is a representing. That this nature that wants to go against God. That nature has been buried with Christ in his death. And when he's risen again. I'm born with a new nature. That's what baptism represents. And that's what makes someone a Christian. Do you understand? That is why we don't have to, uh, I've got I to preach quietly. That is why we don't have to be circumcised anymore. Hit the first long slide. Hit it, Joe. Or Haley. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, which is a true people of God, if he has one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from man, but from God. Romans in Romans, Paul says, what matters is not physical outward circumcision but a circumcision of the heart, a heart that is separated for God, a new nature that the Holy Spirit gives. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3, verse 33. For if we are for it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Once again, Paul is Paul is emphasizing the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts. It sets our heart. It sets our nature for God. That's what it means. Galatians chapter 6 verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. In him you are also circumcised. In the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men. But with the circumcision done by Christ. All these verses is fulfillment of what God tells, what God promised in Jeremiah. I will write my law in their hearts, which means I'm going to give them a new nature, a nature that delights in me, the nature that comes as a person is united with Christ. Am I nerding out? Are you with me? Then what is the sign of that new covenant? When we, that symbolizes our, our changes of our nature. What is it? What is the new sign of the covenant that symbolizes our nature change? What is it, people? Baptism. The sign that we have received the new covenant where Christ gave us a new nature is baptism. That's the sign of the new covenant. Okay. You with me so far? You want a break? Bathroom break or something? Coffee break? Now, let's come to arguments why people, we, didn't, we need this background to talk about infant baptism. Why do proponents believe in infant baptism? Number one, they believe, at the end of it, the most baseline reasoning that they believe infant baptism is still relevant is that even though Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. God promised to covenant with Abraham, which God promises to which, which God promises to bless his children, right? The biological connection that the covenant of Abraham, the God made with Abraham, the, and, and his children will benefit, that biological connection still exists in the new covenant. Remember, Abrahamic covenant, God promises the blessing is for Abraham and your offspring. So people who propose, who are, who are proponents of baptism is, that relationship, the biological federal relationship still, still applies to the new covenant, which is baptism. Just as, Circumcision applies to Abraham and his descendants. Baptism also applies to the person who is saved and their family. Are you with me so far? Okay? The biological connection still exists in the New Covenant. That's what proponents of infant baptism believe. And they have New Testament grounds. Hit the next slide. So these are some of the Bible verses that that infant baptism baptists believe in the New Testament that justifies their position, right? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles. and They start in tongue. They speak in tongue and they prophesy and they start preaching. And this is what Peter preached to the Jews. He says, repent and be baptized. Is Acts 2 behind you? All right. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, you, he means the Jews, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Proponent of infant baptism is saying, look, Peter says the promise of Jesus Christ and the blessing of the Holy Spirit, it says, Peter says it's for our children as well. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant of blessing the children of believers is still valid. Another Bible verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. It says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So Paul is saying, By the virtue of a believing parent, the children are holy. If the children are holy, it means that they're benefiting from the new covenant of the parent. Right? You you follow me? Ron, you follow me? look, Look, it says your children are holy. Therefore, if you're a Christian... Your kids are also holy. Therefore, they should receive the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. Also, in in the New Testament, there are five instances when a person gets converted. Not only do do they get converted, but their entire households. Lydia, fashion designer, the Philippian jailer, Cornelius, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says he baptized the household of Stephanos, and I forget who the fifth guy is. But all these five people, when they got converted, not only did they get converted, their entire household got converted. So promote a different baptism saying, look, even in the New Testament, there was household conversions, which means there must have been babies in those households, and their babies must have been converted. I'm sorry, the babies must have received baptism. Are you with me? So, so, promote. So, these are the verses that infant baptist, like infant, infant baptism, people who believe infant baptism use it to support their position. Okay. Not only that, people who believe infant baptism says, Your, our children are members of the church because there are children." they should be part of the visible church, the local congregation. And the way they enter the local congregation is through baptism. Of course, our children are the members of the church. And the way that our kids enter our church is through baptism. Therefore, we should baptize our infants. And number three, this is John Calvin. John Calvin says, there is this mysterious grace that the infant child receives right when he's baptized, he or she's baptized. We don't know what that grace is, Calvin says, but there's a mysterious grace that the infant child receives when he becomes baptized. So this is a summary of what Presbyterian, Presbyterians who practice infant baptism believe. This is what it is. They believe. I have a child, and I baptize my child. I'm a Christian, assuming I'm a Christian, and I have a child, and my child is baptized. Clearly, Presbyterians believe that that child has no idea who Jesus Christ is because he's an infant, right? But I am, when I'm baptizing my child, I'm saying, hope one day. He's, I'm saying, I'm going to raise the child in the church, And I'm going to raise the child in the fear of the Lord so that one day the child will truly receive Jesus Christ. And on the day that the child receives Jesus Christ, that day when the child receives Jesus Christ is a day that that kid doesn't get baptized, but that day is a day of confirmation, which means that day when the kid accepts Christ is a day where it confirmed that the baptism that the kid received as an infant was true baptism. I'll give you a case of, Let's say I baptize my child, right? Let's say, you know, by miracles and miracles, Charlotte has another baby brother. And I'm baptized, Charlotte's baby brother, Zeke. I'm going to name him Zeke, right? So they said, baptize Zeke, right? And Zeke, unlike his brother and sister, is a wild child, right? And he gets baptized as an infant, and he lives crazy life, right? A giant, right? And, like, for his 70 years of his life, Zeke lives, like, even sinners go, wow, that guy should repent, right? <laughs> let's, say, <laughs> let's say Zeke. Unbelievers are worried about Zeke, right? But Zeke, when he turns 80 years old, meets Jesus. Then the Presbyterian doctrine is, at the moment that Zeke meets Jesus, Zeke shouldn't get baptized, because Zeke was already baptized when he was an infant. When Zeke comes to faith, that faith is just it's a confirmation that the baptism that Zeke received when he was an infant was true baptism, do you understand? I think that's the Presbyterian's position. Okay. Of course, in the Presbyterian model, Zeke doesn't come to faith in Jesus Christ when he's 80. Zeke comes to faith in Jesus Christ when he's 15, when he goes through confirmation classes, right? But that's the logic, right? That's the thing. That's the thing. And so that's the Presbyterian position of infant baptism. So why am I not sure that... The Bible is clear in infant baptism. Why am I not sure? Number one, there is no Bible verse anywhere in the Bible that says you should should baptize your infants. There, There isn't. There isn't. There isn't. The basis of infant baptism, once again, is a connection between Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. There isn't any part of the Bible that says, the new covenant, baptism replaces circumcision right? There isn't, okay? And according to the regulatory principle, regulatory principle is a principle that governs Christian worship. According to the regulatory principle, anything that the Bible specifically doesn't mention, you shouldn't include it in church worship. So I'm being conservative here. Once again, I don't know the, the, the veracity of infant baptism. Look, if you come to me and said I was baptized as in an infant, but I was confirmed when I was 17, and I believe my confession faith is sincere, then I recognize the baptism. I don't, I don't discount bat- infant baptism. I, I really don't. If you profess your faith in Jesus Christ through confirmation, yeah, I think, I think you're baptized, right? But I'm just not sure whether I should be baptizing infants because the Bible, it's not very clear on whether that I should be. You know? Look, I'm a lawyer. And maybe this is the lawyer side of me. In law, there is primary evidence and there's secondary evidence. Primary evidence comes from direct source. Pictures. Yeah, I see that guy with a gun shooting that person. Yeah, I think that guy did it. Primary evidence right direct and biblically the primary evidence is specifically mentioned in scripture what is specifically mentioned in scripture of baptism is in the new testament people who listen to the gospel profess their faith in Jesus Christ they're the ones who got baptized that is clear as bell it is So, the conservative side of me, you say, if that's a clear model of the New Testament, I should be following that model. Like I said, in the the New Testament, there is no sign of any instance of where infants were baptized. And maybe the argument for connection between infant, like baptism and circumcision, maybe it's valid. Maybe it's valid. But from where I stand, that's like secondary inferential evidence. And I don't know whether I should, because it's not clear to me. My conscience says, maybe I shouldn't do it because it's not clear to me whether that, should, that, that is it. Once again, I'm not demeaning infant baptism at all. I'm saying it's not clear. And even in the New Testament, like I said the overwhelming evidence in the New Testament is people get baptized after they profess their faith in Jesus Christ, but Jesus himself warns about the separation what the gospel what the gospel will do within family relationships next hit it hit the next thing for me, please Jesus is- t- taking like He's saying, when you believe in the gospel, there is a new family relationship, right? Matthew chapter 12, 12, verses 48 to 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I think Jesus is saying, in, in me, you're formulating a new family bond. It transcends your biological bond. Okay? And that's what we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit as form to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. Once again, Paul is emphasizing the new humanity, the new family of believers for those who are baptized onto Christ. There's a new family dynamic. Of course, you should take care of your biological family members. Paul is clear. If you don't take care of your biological family members, you're worse than an unbeliever. Of course you are. Of course, there's a biological connection. But in the new covenant, there is a new family forming, which is people who are baptized onto Christ. Next Bible verse, please. Matthew 10, verse 34, 36. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. For one's foes will be the member of one's own household. Jesus is saying, because of me, there will be division within your immediate family members. Okay? Fathers, sons will turn against the fathers. Mother, daughters will turn against their mothers. Sister mother-in-laws will turn against their daughter-in-laws. There is a division within the biological family. You see it within Jesus' family. Most, a lot of Jesus' brothers and sisters thought he was Crazy. You see it in the early church. People in the early church were Jewish Christians who professed Jesus is Lord. When they professed Jesus is Lord, all of their biological family members disowned them, kicked them out. The gospel did not bring unity within the family. It brought division within the family. So I don't know. Whether we can say the gospel will automatically, the blessings of the gospel will automatically be given to every every member of your family for this because you're biologically connected to to them. You understand? That's why I'm not sure. Let's look at Acts chapter two again. When Peter says this promise is for you and your children, he's not saying you should baptize your kids. What he's saying here is if you repent in the name of Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, then your children can too receive this promise, just like everyone else is far away. If they repent, the far away here means Gentiles. Whether it is your children or whether it is your Gentiles, if your children or the Gentiles believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. That's Peter's main point in Acts two. First Corinthians seventeen, when Peter, call, when Paul calls the children of believers holy, this is what he means. He doesn't mean by the virtue of their biological connection with you, they're just that God considers them holy. But what he's saying here is, because they're biologically connected to a believer, they receive some form of grace that children of non-believers do not receive. By the virtue of a parent being a believer, children of believers receive a blessing. The parent can teach the child about the Lord Jesus Christ. The parent can raise the kid in the church. There is a special blessing that children of believers receive, and that is true. But 1 Corinthians 17, I don't think it means you should baptize your kids. Right? all the examples of household believers, like all the household conversions. If you look at the majority of those instances, you can kind of tell that those, the, the people in, the, in those households, number one, there's no evidence that babies were included in those households. And number two, when they were, they were, they received, they were baptized because they heard the gospel and they received it, it, it there's a good inference that the, these household baptism, the members of the family also received the gospel and they received it, that's why they were baptized. Once again, let's go back. SPC believes in infant baptism, Pennsylvania's denomination believes in infant baptism. My parents believe in infant baptism. Heck, I was a baptized baby, my children were baptized babies. Clearly, not all, everyone of us are going to go to hell because of it, right? I'm just saying as the pastor of the church we should do things that are absolutely clear in scripture which is to baptize those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? This took shorter than I thought it would. I'm very proud of myself. I know you have a lot of questions. If you have a lot of questions please talk to me about it. Okay. Let us pray. Once again, this isn't more than an intellectual exercise. It is the question we ask ourselves this morning is, have your sinful nature, has it died and has it, ro- has it rose again in Christ? And the evidence of that is you delight in God's law and you delight in loving God and truly you delight in following his ways. Have you been born again in Christ? If you have, praise the Lord. If you're not sure, pray, pray that the Holy Spirit will make your salvation sure. And next, let's just pray for the children of embrace. Let's pray wherever they are. God will use the ministry of embrace, and God will use your influence on your children so that our children can come to living faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray for these things, and we'll to Father, what matters, Lord, is not that we have a certain position of infant baptism or believer's baptism. But what matters is the nature of baptism itself. Father, your great plan, the work of Jesus Christ, is primarily to bury our sinful nature with you, with him, and to raise us with new natures. That is your greatest design and that is your great work in our lives. I pray that work will be done in embrace. embrace. If there is one of us, some of us here, Lord, who have not been united with you, who still live in accordance to their old sinful nature, who old sinful disposition, whose dispositions have not died with you, we pray, Lord, may they hear the gospel and understand, and by the union of their faith, may their natures be buried with you. And may 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 you give them new life, a new resurrected life, Lord, we pray for such dramatic conversion. We pray for those of us who have been saved but who are struggling. Father, Paul speaks of being daily renewed by your spirit. We pray that all of us will be daily renewed by the, our natures will be daily renewed by your spirit. May we not live in accordance to the, to the, to the dictate, dictates of our flesh, but may be controlled and led by the power of the spirit. We pray for our children we pray wherever they are lord may may christianity not just be a set of religious postulates or